0: Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields
1: of Europe.
0: As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields and, most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Battle Walks. I'm Pete Smith. Sadly, today my co-presenter, Matt McLaughlin, um, is unable to be with us, neither by the magic of the airwaves or with me in person, during what will be the second of our ground, uh, On the Ground podcasts. Uh, Actually, Matt and I have visited this site uh, together previously, uh, so he's not missing too much. So, today, where are we? Um, We're going to be visiting the village of Naur, uh, in the department of the Somme. Naur nestles in a wooded valley, about 18 kilometres to the west of Amiens, um, which places it about 30 k behind the front lines of 1916 during uh, the famous Battle of the Somme. So, you have to ask yourself, what was going on? 30 kilometres behind the lines, uh, which would interest us. Well, these villages uh, were hives of activity. Uh, Many of them would never see the like again. Uh, And uh, it's interesting, I often go through these villages, they're quiet, there's nobody here, uh, or very few people here, populations far less than they would have been during the Great War. Um, But certainly during that period, uh, they were absolutely thriving. And of course, uh, a lot of the villages made quite a bit of money from the soldiers in the area. So how would the soldiers arrive in this area? Will they arrive by lorry, by train, on foot? Normally a combination of all three. Units rotating in and out of the line, passing through or staying in the area for days or sometimes uh, weeks. The men were accommodated, uh, often in bell tents, uh, in Nissen huts, a kind of prefabricated hut, Adrian huts, the same, but the French version, Armstrong huts, which are, again, a, a different type of prefabricated hut, uh, the local farms, and, of course, the, the people's houses, when they could uh, get in the mass suspect that the soldiers would have preferred uh, being in somebody's house, a little bit of that home comfort. Um, what were they doing here? Well, they were training for battle, Um, So you would have found practice trenches, ranges uh, for both uh, shooting, uh, grenade throwing, mock battles took place here, of course the old proverbial parades, uh, and they were re-equipped here, uh, ready for their their next uh, stint in the front line. But they also rested in these areas after combat, or sometimes before uh, the soldiers were given that opportunity to recover and prepare. So what were they doing? Well, letter writing. We know that from all of the postcards and and letters that that were sent home, many of which uh, still survive. Uh, sports. They they went and watched the silent films. There were theatres, uh, baths, so they could clean themselves up, and of course religion, a big part of uh, of some of the soldiers' lives. Uh, all taking all taking place in these uh, these village in these villages around uh, where we are now. Uh, the men also visited uh, the bars and the estaminets, and as an interesting term, estaminets—it's a term that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it's a, a bar that sells food, and of course, that place that we don't tend to to talk about too much—the uh, the old brothels. Uh, also, you'd have found uh, those in in these areas. Uh, I hasten to add that this podcast is not going to be coming from a wartime brothel. Um. Other things that the soldiers got up to were were organised outings. Uh, They wanted to get out and about uh, during their periods of uh, when they weren't training, their downtime. So there were organised outings to photographers, to historic sites, to markets, uh, to shops. But perhaps the most important, it was a time to meet the local population, to relax, and for a few days to forget what had been and, of course, what was to come. So without further ado, let's get on the ground in the village of Naor. Welcome to Battle Walks and the second of our outside on the ground podcasts. Um, I'm here with Sarah, who is my partner and also the only Australian guide working on the site. And she'll be my official. She's going to be my official door opener prompter, uh, and will ensure that I don't get lost because it's quite easy to get lost in here. We're standing beside a fairly ordinary wooden door at a location in Naor, which is a a village uh, known as the Cite Souterraine de Naor, or Cite Souterraine de Naor, underground city of Naor. I have to excuse my French pronunciation again. Behind this door, um, at an average depth of 33 metres, we have 30 tunnels stretching for over 2 kilometres with an estimated 300 rooms. Now, we haven't got time to go into all of those rooms, and in fact, uh, they haven't all been uh, excavated, but there's enough for us to, to explore. So how does this site relate to the experience of the, the soldier of World War I? Uh, to answer that, really, I need to explain a little bit about the history of the site um, before we actually pass through the, uh, pass through the door. Uh, caves have always been a place of refuge, and we know that during the, the war uh, the men will use caves uh, for for uh, safety and protection. Uh, in this case, we're too far behind the line, so that's, that's not the case. Uh, these uh, caverns were all hand-dug into the chalk, so they're not natural. Every single one was actually hand-dug, and they can be dated as far back as the Roman times, And certainly we know that uh, during the Viking raids uh, of the 6th century they were used. They were used again during the Norman invasion of this area. They were used in the Hundred Years. War. I'm sure you're getting the idea. These uh, have been developed and expanded upon uh, throughout uh, history. But perhaps the most important time uh, was during a period from 1618 to 1648, which is known as the Thirty Years. War. a a terrible time for Europe, I have to say. Uh, One of the most traumatic periods uh, of Europe's history. Uh, all to do with uh, uh, religion, and it's estimated that over 8 million people uh, could have lost their lives during these uh, religious wars that uh, went backwards and forwards across uh, all of uh, Europe. These caverns were used at that time, they were created and used, very much the people hidden here at times of danger, and eventually they, as as history fades and their use fades, they disappeared almost into obscurity and were almost uh, forgotten about. At the end of the 19th century, there's a priest uh, in this area who comes to be the priest, the local priest. He's also an archaeologist called Father Danny Corr. And he search for these. He knew about them and he found them and then he requested from the pulpit help from the local people to come and to come and excavate them. And he thought that two things, it's going to give the local people work, there wasn't an awful lot of work and it's paid labour to excavate these caverns uh, and also he could see that there would, could be possibly religious connotations connected with these and he certainly, he, he made them much more religious than they had been, but also he knew that people would be interested, that uh, you know, the history uh, of the caverns and the caves here, the hiding places would become uh, historic. And he was right and uh, by eight, the 1890s they become well known and they were a, a, a tourist attraction. And that's the key. These are a tourist attraction and they will attract the soldiers who are going to be serving uh, in this uh, in this area. So we're standing in front of the door Sarah's going to open the door for us. I'm just going to stand up and head towards the door. Big oak door. So we're just opening the door now and uh, it's a bit gloomy in here. We're heading uh, down some stairs. So these are actually brick-built stairs. Um, Interestingly, this uh, brick aspect of it, as you enter, and some of the rooms and the handrail and the electricity that is down here, even though it has been rewired, um, are from the Second World War, because the Germans became aware of this site, and they didn't come here as tourists. They came here looking at a place to store ammunition and equipment, and they uh, took over the the caves and uh, use them for storing uh, munitions here. So we're just walking down flights of stairs until we get to the ground, the base. So we're now that 30 metres uh, below ground and we are uh, heading up a narrow corridor. And this corridor could, uh, two people could pass side by side, but not much more than uh, more than that. And we're heading towards a room, and this room is an important room for what we're going to be discussing. It's been newly, um, I suppose, protected. It's got a new door on it, a a pine door, and we're just standing in front of the uh, of the uh, the door. So, what I'm going to do is we'll stop here and we'll have a little chat about uh, about what went on here. So, one of the things to ask is: if soldiers are going to visit this site, how are they uh, how are they they literally getting here? Um well, we know there were organised trips that some of the units who are resting in the area some of the battalions some of the the drivers the the transport men they got time off and and they came here and so they came they cycled here if they could get hold of push bikes they walked here if they were very close by or they came on military transport uh, to the site um this is known as the uh, the chambre de tourisme so the chamber of tourism and it's a private room the average uh, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, um, tourists coming to this area. He's not allowed in this room. He, he has to be on a battlefield tour. And it'll become very obvious when we go into the room why, why that is. Um, so the lighting's very low, and I quite like that. You can bring a torch, you can get torches as you enter, and it's quite nice to have a torch and start shining them on the walls themselves. Because this is why we're here. It's because on these walls, the soldiers signed their names. So as they visited, they they signed their names. We have Australians, British, Canadians, South Africans, New Zealanders, Americans, and of course the Germans from the Second World War. And overriding all of that, the French, from before the war and after the war, they came here and left their signatures on the walls. So let's just have a a little chat about why people are leaving their signatures on on the walls here. And I think this is perhaps one of the most interesting aspects. And, And we don't really know exactly. It's down to that individual. Are you leaving it here just because you like graffiti and you like scribbling on things? Well, I'm sure there's an element of everybody likes to leave their name about. Are they here because there is a distinct religious overturn to this site, and that's because the priest that discovered it, he, he made it quite religious. Um, and so is, the, is it the religious aspect? If you're a soldier and you're going into combat, would you like to, to leave your name? And hopefully that will bring you maybe a, perhaps a little more luck uh, if you left your name uh, in a, a religious site. Or is it men, and I think this is probably the most likely, men who know... Very sadly, that they may be leaving the world soon. They're going into combat, and they may be killed. And they just want to leave something of themselves on a world that they may be leaving. Uh, and so, uh, and sadly, that is that is the case in many, many of these names that are on on the walls here. So we've just opening the door, and we're uh, now entering uh, the room. Sarah's doing all of the uh, all of the opening and shutting of doors and unlocking things for me. And it's... I don't know really how to explain it because it's chalk. It's white. uh, It's human chalk, so it's uh, little flat areas all over that have been deliberately smoothed off to make them even smoother. There are flint nodules here in the roof and on the wall, so flint naturally occurs in chalk. And on all of it... And we get bats here as well. Sarah's just pointing out to me there's a little pipistrel bat hanging from the the roof in here. Um, And... Every flat space has a signature on it. It's just truly extraordinary that men came in and they were obviously carrying pencils. They were given pencils because these are not your standard military uh, indelible pencil that's blue. This this is all black pencil. And to me, it looks like the soldiers were given pencils. And when you go down there, mate, sign your, sign your name on the wall. And so we have names all over the wall. Sometimes it's just a signature. Sometimes it's just where they came from. But for a lot of the men, they left absolutely everything here. So I'm just going to read a couple of the names that uh, are on here and then we'll do a, we've done a bit of research uh, on, the, on the signatures so I can tell you a little bit uh, of a story. And that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be walking around these, uh, these chambers, these tunnels, these caves and telling stories of some of the men that actually signed their signatures uh, down here. So the first one I'm going to read is, uh, its I can see it on the wall now, 9th in big thick pencil, 9th uh, Battalion Australians, C. Fitzhenry, Paddington, Sydney, NSW, New South Wales, and then 1916 July, and then underneath it, Alistair Ross Lismore. So these are two men from the 9th uh, Battalion, they're both Australians and they've signed uh, their, their names and, and written this together. So they're obviously uh, friends. Very sad story, this one, because uh, both of them will lose their lives during the uh, Great War. So who, in fact, are these guys? Well, a a little bit confusing because Charles Fitzhenry, and it just shows you the research you have to do, um, is his real name. But he wasn't serving under Charles Fitzhenry. He was serving under Private 1126 William Doyle. And he was a shearer, born in Casino, New South Wales, and enlisted in Queensland, so he'd, he'd obviously moved. He served at Gallipoli, as they both did. Um, he would be wounded three times, and sadly, the last one uh, being fatal, when he was uh, he was shot in the head on the 10th of August, 1918. He didn't die. It was uh, it was a wounding, and uh, but he will die a little later on the twenty first of August, nineteen eighteen, at La Trepa, which is up on the coast. It's one of those uh, the medical uh, centers on the coast. I think at La Trepa, it's the third Canadian General Hospital he's based there. So he's, he was probably there, and he's buried there in Mont Houen uh, Military Cemetery. I think that's how you pronounce it, Sarah. Houen, do we think? Yeah, Houen. Well, she's nodding. Um, his uh, his friend, uh, the um, Alistair uh, Ross and um, from Lismore um, again we have a slight ambiguity uh, he is spelling his name um, T-A-I-R uh, but he enlisted as T-E-R uh, um, Alistair so he, he anglicized uh, his name from the Scottish because he he's a Scot he was born in Scotland Oh, and Sarah's just pointing out that actually he signed his name twice uh, within this room, and he used both spellings. On once, sp- uh, on once s- he spells it one way, on the other he spells it the other way. So uh, Scottish, and then you would have to say an anglicised version of of his name. Um, and he was, uh, I say, born in Scotland. In fact, we know that he had a uh, a tattoo on his arm of a of a Scottish thistle. And um, he had also served in the, uh, the British Army as a territorial before he came out here in the 4th Seaforth Highlanders, before he actually emigrated to Australia. Um, at Gallipoli, he was saved uh, from a piece of shrapnel that hit his uh, Bible, which is in his uh, breast pocket. And uh, that saved his, his life. So he, again, also serving at Gallipoli. And um, he was still carrying that Bible uh, in France. Um, it had been given to him by his, uh, his mother, and he wrote in it, uh, and it, and it just shows you how terrible uh, the battle of fighting at Pozières must have been. Came through, uh, came safely through the Battle of Pozières. Battle lasted nearly a week. My battalion had many casualties. I had many narrow escapes came through safely. And he wrote that uh, in his diary on the 6th of August in 1916. Sorry, his Bible on the 6th of August, 1916. And sadly, on the 22nd of August, 1916, he lost his life fighting at uh, uh, Mukau Farm, Mukay Farm, which is also part of the Poitiers' uh, battlefield. Um, His body was not recovered, and he's commemorated on the VB memorial to the missing Interesting, if you want to track down that Bible, it is actually at the Anzac Memorial uh, Hyde Park in in Sydney. So we can actually see that Bible. It must have been recovered from uh, from his body before his body became lost on the battlefield. Um, What's obvious from looking at uh, all of these names is that a lot of research uh, needs to be done when you're trying to find these names. Um, And... uh, it's ongoing. It is ongoing the research that's been done within uh, w- with the names here, and uh, it's, it's part of the enjoyment. Actually, my enjoyment certainly is looking at the names and trying to discover more about the men, especially the English soldiers. A little bit more difficult for the soldiers from Britain to to actually uh, uh, to find out who they are because their service files uh, don't exist. So let's look at a, a British soldier's name. Corporal Walstonholm uh, has written his name here. Uh, what he'd written on the wall? Uh, wall was Corporal Walstonholm? Six MAC. R-A-M-C, and that's the 6th Motor Ambulance Convoy, of which is a member, Royal Army Medical Corps. So this guy is a stretcher-bearer, effectively, uh, or is a a medic in a vehicle going backwards and forwards, uh, picking up people, uh, wounded soldiers, from the front line. That's what the Motor Ambulance Convoy uh, generally do. They wait from the the dressing stations, or as close as they can get bringing the people back. So who is he? Well, he's number 47688, Corporal Irving Wollstoneholm, He was born in Manchester, um, and enlisted and was living in London uh, when the war started. He was uh, lightly gassed on the 13th of July 1917. I don't know why I say lightly. Any kind of gassing's not particularly good. Um, and he had a hernia in the August of 1917. And perhaps that's more understandable from lugging heavy stretchers uh, about. He'd been uh, awarded the Military Medal. It just states in his file for an act of courage, because he does have a a little bit of a file, in 1915. And he was married uh, during the war and also had a child during the war who was born in 1918, and he will survive the war. Uh, So that's a a nice inscription to find. Two more before we move off here. And these are inscriptions that are uh, odd because they don't have names or anything. They're just, just people writing things. And one says, Durban, South Africa, 19th of the 3rd, 1916. And the other one, perhaps more interesting, is almost a political slogan. It says, Primrose Day, 19th of April, 1916. And in fact, Primrose Day was the anniversary of the death of uh, a British Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, uh, who died on the 19th of April uh, in 1881. Primrose was his uh, favourite flower. And something called the Primrose League uh, was formed, and uh, it was a conservative organisation described as with cross-class appeal. So you can see why it, uh, was, it lasted a long time. And in fact, the Primrose League was only wound up in 2004 after 121 uh, years. So just a, a political slogan written on the walls. And in fact, I think it's the only political slogan written on the walls. So we're now going back uh, into the gallery. Sarah's going to turn the light off behind me. Walking down the gallery that we came up, uh, many rooms off each side. Uh, these rooms uh, have all had a little bit of work done to them. They tend to have uh, uh, frames, which shows that they had doors on, and, and a bit of brickwork. And that's because these are, are part of the the rooms used by the Germans. We're not going to go and have a look at the German signatures today, uh, but in one of those rooms, we have some German signatures uh, of German soldiers who were working here. We're now going to go left another narrow passageway again these passageways about the the two people can pass flint sticking out all over little nodules of flint and chalk and what we're heading for is a little chapel so here we are we're standing in a, a very small chapel uh, it's got the virgin mary at the end and uh, this room is described as the chapel uh, and it's room number number 6 so um, we have a name here, and I, I think this name is. This, I think the names in here are all interesting because these are probably guys who were p- perhaps quite religious and, and felt that uh, this may help if they came into this room and left their signatures in here. Again, we'll never know for certain. So we have a name written on the wall here: C. C. J. McCann, Twenty Seventh Battalion, South Australia. We don't know what the actual date was that it arrived here, but we know the month. It was March in nineteen seventeen. Now, he, uh, Lieutenant Claude Cyril John McCann, had seen some serious combat. Um, he uh, was only 23 years old. Uh, and when he came in here, he was a company sergeant major, so he'd not yet been uh, commissioned. He will be commissioned, and he will also be awarded the Military Cross for the fighting on the the Menin Road in the September of 1917. He'd also been wounded twice: once at Pozières on the fourth of August, 1916, um, and then uh, again at the advance to victory on the ninth of August, uh, 1918. Um, he will survive the war, thankfully. So perhaps signing here may have done him uh, done him some good, but certainly he he saw some very uh, heavy combat. He also had two brothers who served. Uh, sadly, one of those will, will not survive the war. He was Lance Corporal Jack McCann of the Forty Third Battalion. And uh, he was killed at La Hamel on the 4th uh, of July and is buried at Crucifix Corner in Villers uh, Bretonneux. And his other brother uh, was a Major William McCann, 10th Battalion, and he'd been awarded the DSO, Distinguished Service Order, uh, a military cross twice, so MC and Bar, and he also survived to return to uh, to Australia. So we're going to leave the little chapel and we're going to uh, a little bit of walking to do now we're going to head along this rather ripply floor the floor ripples it's chalk as well it's uh, discoloured by lots and lots of people uh, walking on it walking across the uh, the corridor we came in on and into an area that is very rough hewn so this is rough cut uh, again the ceilings uh, just out of my just out of reach i can almost reach it we're going up some stairs Starting to feel a little bit like I'm on the set of uh, Indiana Jones here. Up at the top of the stairs. The ceiling again is dropped, so the ceiling's quite close to us again. Lights along the way, so we're not in complete darkness. Just so you can get an idea of uh, how we are, we're, we're dressed in fairly warm clothes, because it can get a little bit chilly in here. Um, my notes, I've got a little light on my notes. Sarah's got a torch, so we can see what we're doing. Climbing up some more stairs, handrails at each side and into a room that really does feel like you're on the set of Indiana Jones. Uh, we have a, a large pillar to our right-hand side, religious symbolism again, Virgin Mary and the uh, baby Jesus, and uh, which is way above us. And interestingly, when we came here earlier, just doing a quick run-through of it, I said to Sarah, "How big is this?" And she pointed it out to my right-hand side. And uh, on this pillar, it actually gives the the height of the pillar: 22 meters. So we're looking up 22 meters up to the uh, the roof. And the roof here is timber. This is the area when they cleared these uh, these caverns and caves and walkways. This is where they removed all the rubble uh, in the uh, end of the in the ninth. Uh, in the eighteen nineties, this is how they removed all of the the rubble out of here. Eighteen eighties, I suppose, is when they would have started. So, wh- where are we? Well, this one is called the Rotund, and um oh, thank you, <laughs> Sarah's giving me instructions. She's saying because there are four entries here, the four four entries are coming in from different directions. So it's a it's kind of a roundabout, I suppose, really almost. It's the, the central point uh, in this in this area. Um. Blocks of chalk. This is, this is what makes this un- unusual and feel like a tomb almost, is because this is actually walled. It's, it's got solid blocks of chalk that have been built into supports and into entrances, but these square blocks are great for writing on. So again, it's absolutely covered. As far as you can reach, and you have to say occasionally, the guys must have literally climbed on each other's so- shoulders to get a little higher, so they could scribble a name a little bit higher. So names all over the walls, and Perhaps one of the most uh, interesting names here, again, it's two mates. It's two mates who are writing their names quite often side by side. They are both uh, serving in the same battalion, the 16th Battalion. So I'm going to read what's written. Walking across now, Sarah's just taking a photograph of it. Um, so C. Hyde, Perth. And he's got W. 1916. Os. So it's it's Western Australia, 1916. And the other one, W. Police. Perth, WA, Western Australia, so they obviously came from the same area, they're serving in the same battalion, which I think was raised in, uh, was it raised in Western Australia, sir? I think so, 16th Battalion, um, so Private Cecil Hyde, the first man that we mentioned, 16th Battalion, born in Eastbourne East, in the UK, again he's another, another Brit, who uh, obviously emigrated to Australia, um, and his friend is Sergeant William Police, 16th Battalion. He was born in Adelaide. Now, Police is not uh, his original name, even though he joined up with Police. His original name was uh, Polizo, and his father had emigrated from the Greek island of uh, Skopelos. Uh, so one of the early Greek emigrants, uh, to uh, immigrants to Australia. Both of them... Uh, will will serve together uh, and they will both fight uh, uh, at Bulcock uh, on the 11th of May 1917 uh, um, and sadly one of them uh, will uh, will will not uh, will not survive so, Private uh, Cecil Hyde of the Sixteenth Battalion, he was uh, actually killed in action on the eleventh uh, of April, nineteen seventeen, first day of the f- of the battle, of the first battle of Bulcote, and he has no known grave, and he's commemorated on the VB uh, Memorial uh, to the Missing at Villers Bretonneux. So, his good friend uh, uh, Sergeant William Police, who was uh, reported missing on the eleventh of April in nineteen seventeen, at uh, at Bulcow, Uh, He uh, was uh, wounded, um, but he became a a prisoner of war. So he was uh, captured and will eventually be repatriated back to the UK uh, in uh, 26th of the 12th, uh, 1918. So one survives, one doesn't. Uh, I I like these two guys. Uh, Sarah and I have done quite a bit of work on them, just reading their service files very closely, trying to find more about them. And they sign their names everywhere. That's the one thing to say. We are in the first room that that we find their names. But they signed them multiple times in this room. It's quite extraordinary how many times they signed their names throughout. And we suspect, we'll never know for certain, but we suspect that they may have been involved with the site. While their battalion, the 16th Battalion, was here, we think they may have come up here, done a bit of a recce, found out what was going on, found out that uh, uh, this is an interesting site. And we think they may have been charging their men a bit of dosh to bring them up here. and Because uh, they are both, you have to say, the service files, you can tell they're, they're a bit of Jack the Lads. Um, and um, we think that they possibly uh, um, brought people here and uh, and showed them round. Uh, so that's why they signed their names all over the place. But we'll, we'll never know for certain. So we're going, to, uh, we're going to move on again. We will cross their paths again. I'm sure Sarah's going to point out to me uh, where uh, William police and Cecil Hyde have signed now she's doing it now (laughs) just as we're leaving now again slight feel of Indiana Jones we're going through a very narrow uh, passageway which is a uh, a block built chalk block passageway which you have to turn sideways I'm turning sideways walking sideways to get through it it's so tight we're now opening up into a Uh, A larger room, so into a larger room, we can see very clearly the flint banding. We're going downhill again, so we're going deeper underground here, remembering that this is all underground. You can probably tell, I'm hoping you get a feel from the echoing of my my voice as we're walking down some steps. We're going past um, a trough on the left-hand side. It's an animal trough, because in those periods uh, where the local people hid in here... They were expecting to be here for some time, so they'd brought uh, livestock down here and food for livestock, and also troughs where they could have, uh, where they could water them. And in fact, there were wells here in these underground caverns, so they didn't need to leave them. Uh, here we go, and out oh, bang my head. And we're now, Sarah keeps in man to man uh, We're now into another room. Uh, this room again is a fairly big, uh, big room. Um, it's called the uh, Saldefets, the room of the fets par- parties. but That's not quite a good uh, good term. Um, and um, this uh, room has a almost like a table in the front of it. I suppose that's why it's called the room of the uh, Saldefets because there's a, a table made out of uh, hewn out of out of chalk. And here we have. Um, an interesting little piece section of wall covered in graffiti again covered in the names of the soldiers. I don't like calling it graffiti because graffiti kind of gives you the impression of the, it's nonsense. None of this is uh, is nonsense. It's all uh, very uh, very carefully uh, uh, written by the men, so you can clearly see what they're what they're writing. So I'm just going to sit down on this uh, this table. So perhaps it's not a table. Perhaps it's a seat. Um, and we have. Quite extraordinary, this I find. In this one room, there are two sets of brothers. So there are there are two sets of brothers who who both uh, uh, wrote the, the names here. So I'll see who they are first of all. James and George Tucker they sign their names together, and Percy and Abel Ellis they also sign their names in this room. So who are they? So James and George Tucker their names are, are on the wall. Uh, James Edward Tucker, uh, both serving in the uh, Fourth. Field Artillery Brigade, uh, both joining up at the same time, uh, sequential numbers. We know that they stood side by side uh, when they they enlisted. Um, They will both survive the war. And in fact, uh, James uh, took a wife while he was uh, in uh, in England, and he will take her back to Australia. Uh, She was uh, called Isabel. Uh, Isabella Ross and they married in 1918 and uh, went back to Australia and and they were living in Australia George, actually he must have been jealous of his brother we can only guess and he thought I think I'll go and find myself an English uh, English bride so after the war he made his way back to the UK Uh, but sadly things won't go particularly well because Uh, Unfortunately, um, in 1933, he will be knocked down by a London bus in a snowstorm and and killed. Just terrible, isn't it? Survived the First World War and then killed by a bus in 1933 in in London. Um, But both of them uh, survived survived the war, and both of them are remembered here. Their names are here. So the the next uh, brothers, Percy and Abel Ellis, they uh, served together um, uh, during, uh, during the war in the 14th Battalion. But they didn't join together, uh, Percy had joined uh, in 1914, uh, he joined very early and uh, I say been allocated to the 14th Battalion, fought at Gallipoli, wounded uh, at Gallipoli, wounded when the battalion first came to, uh, to the Western Front in the October of 1916. And then finally wounded and taken prisoner on the 11th of April 1917 during the First Battle uh, of Bull And eventually will be repatriated to to England. His brother obviously uh, joined later on in 1915 and wanted to be with him because he was originally allocated to the 7th Battalion. But he transferred to the uh, 14th uh, Battalion and served uh, with the 14th Battalion. Uh, sad, very sadly, was killed in action at Pozieres on the eighth of August, nineteen uh, sixteen, and again, no known grave commemorated on the uh, national memorial at Villers Bretonneux. Um, there was a third brother, um, Thomas Ellis, uh, and he uh, returned to Australia. He survived as well, but he didn't sign his name with his two brothers, so he obviously wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, serving uh, serving with them. Um, so we're going to stand up we going to puff my seat and we're going to head uh, along just round the corner to another little uh, section called the Sal de Congress and this is a just walking round the corner and this is an interesting room because we have a, a large obelisk in the uh, the middle of this room with a like a football on the top of it um, lots of, uh, of people's name are uh, engraved on the obelisk and it's the people that were involved in the archaeology the original archaeology as they dug out uh, the site here but again we have several areas of walls where we have nice smooth uh, stonework and it's those nice smooth sections in this area that have been uh, heavily uh, engraved or not engraved written on written on because it's not engraving this is uh, pencil work written on by soldiers here and there's one just i'm standing in front of him uh, here now and what we've got in here is it says, uh, Sergeant S. Makosha, VC, 1st, 6th, West Yorks. So this is a British soldier. The VC stands for Victoria Cross. So this is a man who'd already been awarded the Victoria Cross when he came into these uh, this room and actually signed the walls here. So who is he? Well, eventually he'll be Captain Samuel Makosha. But previously, he'd been number, because obviously privates and rankers have numbers, number 1147 uh, of the 1st of the 6th Battalion, West Yorkshire Regiment. So that's a territorial regiment. It's part-time soldiers. He would actually was a a pre-war soldier, enlisted in the 6th Battalion on the 20th of February 1911. So he'd been serving since 1911, so he would have some idea of of what it was uh, going to be like uh, to be a soldier, certainly. He'd been born in Leeds, Yorkshire, so he would have had an accent, well, not dissimilar to mine. The West Yorkshire accents and the East Yorkshire accents are quite different, but uh, for the uninitiated, let's say it's kind of similar to mine. Um, his father had been, uh, or was, Polish-Russian, uh, and his mother Irish, so that's where he gets his, uh, his name from, Mikosha. Um, he'd been awarded the Victoria Cross in November of 1915 f- during fierce fighting on the uh, uh, visor sector in, in Belgium. And he'd led a small platoon of men out into a, a network of uh, isolated trenches during heavy shell fire. And uh, basically what he'd done, he'd rescued men who were buried alive uh, in the mud. Uh, uh, just extraordinary bravery under very heavy uh, shell fire. He saved uh, four people. Um, and awarded the highest distinction that a, a soldier can be awarded in the in the British and Commonwealth forces, uh, the Victoria Cross. So he was only 22 years of age, and that Victoria Cross was awarded to him by the King on the 4th of March 1916. So probably just before he he came here to uh, to sign uh, his name on the. On the walls here, because we haven 't got a date as to when he, when he signed his name, and he was promoted to a lieutenant and then captain in 1919... and in fact went on again to serve in the uh, in the second world war uh, as well so we 're going to head out again Just across across the room to the to the other side round the uh, round the uh, uh, the um, spire with the, f- the football on the top. And we have another name. Now, this one's difficult to find, and certainly i lose this occasionally, this uh, this name. And it says, Capt I.S. Margetts, 12th Battalion. So this is another Australian soldier. Captain Ivor Stephen Margetts, M.I.D., mentioned in dispatches. 12th Battalion. Um, he was born on the 4th of September in 1891. Sarah's just pointing out exactly where his inscription is, so I'll remember next time I'm here. And uh, sadly, he will be killed in action on the 24th of July at Pozières, 1916. So this is, I think, uh, this is one of the first officer's signatures that we've we've seen. As I said at the beginning of this uh, explanation of uh, of these engravings and these names written on these walls, it's not just the men, it's also the officers that that wrote their, their names. Um, he's quite famous for, for an awful lot of reasons. I, I think one of the most important ones is A, here, we've got his, his signature here, but for a long, long time you could have seen the marker marking his grave. Now he's got no known grave, he's actually commemorated on the Australian uh, Memorial at Villas Bretonneau the Memorial to the Missing, the National Memorial. Um, he was buried on the battlefield, and in 1917, when we had an awful lot of photographers uh, taking pictures of the battles of 1916, because the Germans have left those fields and have now moved uh, to back to the Hindenburg Line, so we can now wander across the old battlefields of 1916. And there are several photographs in the Australian War Memorial collection that uh, portray his original grave marker. Um, the original grave marker was just a low cross, and then he had a, a little more substantial marker made and put on his grave uh, later on. Sadly, when they tried to recover his body at the end of the war, he, wasn't, uh, he was no longer wh- where he'd been put, or the marker was no longer where it, it, it had been put, or the marker was not there at all. We don't know which, but certainly his body was, n- was never found, and so he's on the memorial uh, to the missing. He was one of those officers that the men loved him, he, he's, uh, he's written about quite a bit, the di- his diaries are in the War Memorial uh, in Australia, uh, and uh, we have an account just from the, uh, a stretcher bearer who actually moved his body, uh, carried his body to be, uh, to be buried, and his account, uh, a shrapnel came into his left chest and apparently penetrated his heart, I helped him buried Monday morning in a shell, and he means a shell hole, near the place where he fell, he was the best man there was men loved him i cried like a kid when i discovered he was dead i think he went away because he was too good for the beast of war i struck a small cross on his grave in his memory so i think that's just uh, very uh, very moving so uh, yes a man that uh, died before his time he's certainly uh, well loved by his men and i think would have had a great future if he'd uh, he'd su- he'd survived so let's just do one more in this uh, in this room. And this man wrote almost his full, his full title here 1075 Private L. Barand, 10th of the 12th, 1916, 6th Machine Gun uh, uh, Company, AIF, Colac, 6th Brigade. Now I had to ask Sarah, was Colac a place? I wasn't quite sure what that meant. And she said, yes, it is a place. Where is it, Sarah? Colac? Uh, it's in Victoria, so Colac here uh, in Victoria. So who is this? Well, it nearly tells you. He's number 1075, Sergeant Leslie Barand MM. So another man uh, awarded the Military Medal. 2nd Machine Gun Battalion, and he was awarded the MM on the 9th of August. Uh, just uh, that final push start of the 100 days. It started on the 8th of August, so second day. He took very heavy casualties on that day. But 9th of August, 1918, awarded the MM at Fram Ville, uh, Villa, Framville, no, Framville, sorry. Uh, and he was born in Geelong uh, in uh, in Victoria. He became quite a famous chap in a way because he eventually moved to Wagga Wagga, set up a very successful transport company. He became a local magistrate and eventually the mayor of uh, Wagga Wagga and I believe a street still carries uh, his uh, his name. Um, so uh, very famous. He also got a, a little a little title. He was known as the Wagga Wagga Sniper because he'd fought on uh, on the Gallipoli Peninsula and he'd been a, a sniper there. Um, and uh, he was a good shot. And when he moved to, uh, to Wagga, he or after, after the war, he took part in several shooting competitions and was very successful. And so he got this nickname, uh, the Wagga Wagga Sniper. So that's what he was known as. I think that's great, isn't it? There's these little stories in these uh, in these caves, the little names written on the walls. They mean so much when you start looking into them. They have they have histories and you know of what happened to them next. Sadly, some of them didn't make it, but others went on to do interesting, uh, interesting things have have interesting lives. So you can hear me now. We're walking again, and we're heading. Uh, along a little pass, and Sarah stops again, and I know she's probably pointing out the fact that uh, those two friends, William Police and Cecil Hyde, have signed their names again on another section of wall. This is, this is quite wide. This is a wide shaft now, a wide tunnel that we're, we're in now. And again, on the right-hand side, it's block-built, and so we have lots and lots of, of signatures. I have to say, we're looking at signatures from 1914-18, but there are signatures before that, and there are an awful lot of signatures after the Great War, when people came back in the 20s, 30s, even up to the modern times, you'll get sign- signatures on the 1980s. Uh, they try to stop people doing it now, uh, but people who come here on very general tours, occasionally you'll find another little scratched uh, signature on the wa- on the walls here. So we're now going uh, right and down a very narrow bit. Any minute now, Sarah's going to say, mind my head, because this bit is... Tight now, so it 's almost touching my elbows, and i 'm having to crouch as we go through. We go into a little gravelled area, and the clue here is when you 're with your clients, when the gravel stops, you can stand up again, so that means that we can uh, we can stand at full height. Uh, I can touch the ceiling the roof uh, is not far above us. this is rough hewn again we 've got no blocks here at all, so this is raw chalk and flint nodules. The floor's a bit unsteady we 've got a, a little bit of um we've got a, little bit of rippling in the floor, so you just have to watch your footing, climbing up again through another cut doorway and into an area where we have, again, lots of little rooms off the central passage, and uh, we've got some block work again. So we're just walking around the corner here, and... Perhaps two of the most interesting signatures we're coming to uh, here, are interesting things uh, that we can find on the walls here. So the first thing, uh, I've called this the Digger Sketch Passage, and that gives us a clue. There are only two illustrations on the walls here, and this is one of them. Uh, and it's very obviously an Australian soldier with a slouch hat, hence the Digger Sketch Passage. No writing underneath it, nothing else, just a little brief sketch of an Australian soldier. And it's the only one that you can really identify as a, as a soldier of, of all the sketches. And I say there are only two that we, that we found. So I, I think it's fascinating that a little Australian, he bent into this doorway. On the side of the doorway, he just did a quick sketch of, a, of an Australian with his slouch hat, and We can recognise it. You can recognise straight away. Just glance at it and you know exactly what he's, what he's drawing. So I move to a very narrow bit of the uh, of the the tunnel, and this is this very much feels like a tunnel because the roof is actually shaped here. We have a carved roof, so you're you're in a tunnel, and there are several names on on the walls here, and this is probably the most important name from an Australian perspective. Well, generally speaking, I suppose from any perspective, this is a, a very well-known man that signed his name here. So here we find uh, written on the walls L R Blake, Lieutenant. 105th Howitzer Battery, 5th AFA 7117. So, who is this? Captain Leslie Russell Blake, MC, Military Cross, MID, Mentioning Dispatches, Australian Field Artillery, 5th Brigade, 105th Howitzer Battery. So, that's uh, what, what he's serving in. And let's uh, get it out of the way straight away that he will die on the 3rd of October 1918. Um, he dies uh, of uh, wounds uh, received, uh, right in those final phases of the of the war. His name's tucked away in this in this narrow passage. Born on the 28th of October, uh, 1890 in Hawthorne, Melbourne, Victoria. Studied at Sydney University, uh, and abso- afterwards uh, went on to uh, he was a geologist and a cartographer, and and joined the Queensland Mining Department. In 1911, he was offered a position uh, to join the Douglas Mawson scientific team to undertake a three-year expedition to the Macquarie Islands, and they're about 850 miles uh, southeast of of Hobart. And he was responsible for mapping the island, so using his cartography. One of his companions was Frank Haley. Now, some of you may recognize that name. Frank Haley, he was the Australian official uh, photographer uh, during the Great War. Um, and so he was. He was with him, uh, no doubt taking taking photographs. Uh, so you've got a photographer and uh, a cartographer. Uh, and um, Blake returned home and uh, enlisted immediately. The war has started when they come back, and almost immediately enlisted. He had a bit of a problem in enlisting, and uh, once he'd sorted out his his problem. He enlisted as a, a private in the artillery, but when he was recognized for his education, he very rapidly he rises through the ranks and was uh, commissioned um, became a, uh, an officer uh, awarded the military cross during the Battle of Poisier. I'm just going to read what uh, what that says showed conspicuous and continual gallantry during the poiisiers's operations uh, and uh, he was surveying the front line, so surveying the front line held by our troops from northeast of Poisiers to Moauu farm. Uh, so he, he was doing really what he did in civilian life, but doing it for the uh, for the artillery. Uh, supplied excellent reports and continually volunteered for his work, which he often performed under heavy fire. He was wounded in action on a number of occasions, and a shrapnel wound to his arm uh, caused him uh, quite a bit of problems, and he had to go back and recuperate in the UK for some time. And then, as we said, on the 2nd of uh, October 1918, the, with the offensive nearly over, uh, he found himself in the village of uh, Hagricourt. Uh, Hargikor, should I say, on the Hindenburg line and uh, he was on horseback and he was actually uh, hit by a shell which blew off his his leg killed his horse from under him Uh, he he still survived that Uh, he was taken to the 58th casualty clearing station uh, where the the, the rest of his leg was amputated Uh, but unfortunately he had uh, facial and head wounds as well and uh, and he died of of his wounds so a very famous chap and uh, as I say he signed his name here in 1917. Um, again, very difficult to find, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, just just. I think it's great that the we are doing this, that we we go through and research and and look at these uh, look at these names. And there's a chap called Gilles. I'll be talking about him later on. The archaeologist who did all of this work. It uh, must have been a fantastic when he found, you know, that he's actually got the name of somebody who was uh, who was famous. So we're going to uh, continue uh, along the passage another little room on our our left-hand side and again it's one that's only accessible if you're on one of these uh, one of these private uh, tours and uh, we found two friends again who have signed their their names together W Basing this is what th- what they've written W Basing and R H Dura, 15th battalion uh, AIF New South Wales Australia and we know, uh, they didn't put a date on it, but we know that the 15th Battalion was here between the 16th and the 25th of July, 1916, uh, when both of these friends, who were both uh, born in New South Wales, both had served at Gallipoli, and both will be wounded again uh, uh, together at Pozières. So they signed this just before they moved into the front line at Poissier when they were wounded on the 9th of August. So who were they exactly? So, uh, Corporal Walter Henry Basing, 15th Battalion AIF, wounded the 9th of August at Poizier, um, and uh, he died, unfortunately, of wounds on the 6th of July 1918, shrapnel head and right forearm at the Battle uh, of, of La Hamel, or close to La Hamel, and he's buried in Croy British uh, Cemetery. Uh, his friend, Private Raymond Harold uh, Durer, Fifteenth Battalion A F wounded the ninth of August at Pozières, and captured on the eleventh of April at Bulcor, along with the one thousand one hundred and seventy other Australians who were captured in the fighting uh, at uh, at Bulcor. So again, it's uh, it's uh, a, a terrible little story, but uh, at least one of them one of them uh, gets through because he, he was captured. So off we go uh, again, and we're going to head down. Uh, the slope again. We've got rails at each side to stop us falling over, and we're entering very quickly, just entering another room, and this one is called uh, the Sal uh, de Ancestors, uh, and it's got a, a rather beautiful uh, pillar in the middle of it with a cross on the top, a uh, uh, very ornate, almost Celtic cross on the top, uh, and around it uh, we have some wording. And basically, what this is doing, this is where we commemorate all of those that, uh, that lived uh, during those periods of, of hardship, those periods of war, who came to these uh, caves and lived. So it's commemorating those who sought refuge here at times of, uh, of warfare here. So it's a lovely room, um, but it's no flat surfaces, so there are no signatures or very few signatures in this room. You can never say no, because when you look carefully, you often find one or two. So down some steps. Okay, so here we are, we're now approaching the the next room, and this is called Sal Alsop, so Salbin room, so room Alsop. Again, this is a room that's not open to the public, so Sarah's just ahead of me. She's just going to unlock the door. Now, this is the final uh, room on the tour. Uh, It's a big room, lots of space. The ceiling has gone up again to, I don't know, more metres above us. So we're just opening the door, she's just going to turn the light on. Okay, so walking into it. Again, immediately in front of us, we've got an enormous wall made out of blockwork. And that's what we really look for, is this blockwork. Because the blockwork is what encourages the men of 1914 18 to come and sign their names. So we're in an area here. And uh, this is also kind of because it is used just by people on battlefield tours who are coming here into these. Uh, into these caves. Uh, this is used as a, a little memorial. We have a poppy wreath here and some poppies and things here, um, because we have an, a, a whole wall of soldiers' uh, names and, and a real uh, mix of names. So Sarah's just pointing uh, one out, and that one is why the the room is called uh, Sal Alsop. It's Wilfred Allen Alsop, uh, and his signature can be found on these uh, on these walls, and he's a. Uh, no different to any of the other soldiers here, but there's an interesting little story that uh, that goes uh, with him. So what, what did he write? Well, he wrote uh, 2nd of the 1st 17, so 2nd of January 1917, and that terrible winter of uh, 1617, of, uh, coldest winter for 40 years. It was probably not quite nice down here, out, out of the snow and the horrible cold weather. it be quite warm in here with lots of people uh, in here together. So A. Alsop Mossman, Sydney. So who is he? He's number 6777 Private Wilfrid Joseph Allen Alsop, 8th Australian Field Ambulance um, and uh, he also served in the Signal uh, Company at the end of the war. He was known as Allen because his father uh, had the same uh, name as him, Wilfred, so everybody called him uh, Allen. He enlisted in the July of uh, 1915. And this is the fascinating thing. This is what uh, lots of people have looked for. It's, it's some kind of proof as to why people were coming here and what was going on. Uh, and Alan actually kept a diary. And the entry on the 2nd of January 1917 reads, In the afternoon, a party of ten of us went for a trip to the famous caves near Naor, where the refugees hid, used to hide in time of invasion. These caves contain about 300 rooms, one cave being a half a mile long, a whole division of troops with horses, artillery and all the transport could be put into these caves. I think he was exaggerating just a little bit. The names of John Norton and Eva Panette are to be seen autographed on the stone erected just inside the entrance. Now I have to say, is we had no idea, Sarah and I had no idea who John Norton and Eva Panette were. And we just actually looked them up to see who they were. And they're an Australian journalist and um, a politician and I think he's even known a newspaper proprietor, I think it was described as, so he probably owned a newspaper, and he was here over with his niece. I think Eva Panett is his niece, uh, and they wrote their autographs here. So they must have come across here during the war uh, and written their, their names here. So obviously being Australians, it was point, uh, pointed out to them. Um, there's another little story that goes very nicely with this. So he was here, he kept a diary, so that's the first thing. He's the first guy that we found that kept a diary uh, that mentions coming to these uh, to these uh, caves. Um but almost as importantly, there is another site very close to here in the next village. It's a village called Vinyakor. It's not quite the next village, but close by. And Vinyakor is where a photographer is set up. Um, and some of you may remember the story of the finding of the glass plates of that photographer, uh, which by a, it's a long-winded story, which I won't bore you with, but they end up in the War Memorial. They are now owned by the War Memorial. But uh, a museum is set up where the photographer called Thwillier. Uh, set up his studio in Vignacore. There's now a museum, and you can go to that museum. I would highly recommend that if you're coming this way and you do this this tour of these caves, that you also go to look at the photographs at Vignacore. And he had his photograph taken, and they've got a copy of that photograph, and it's on display. So for the first time, we can actually see a man who signed his name here. He survived the war, but he also had his photograph taken uh, as well, and we can look at his photograph. And I think that's just a great connection to the, the two sites, and um, we've actually done it again. There's now a second link. Uh, a chap called Herbert J Hunt. He is also uh, signed his signature here, and he is also uh, recorded in, in a photograph at Vignacar. So it's nice to kind of join the uh, the two stories together. Um, he returned. Alan returned to Australia in April 1919 and died in, in November 1956. But he's still remembered here, both in photograph and in uh, and in signature on the walls. So just the, the final uh, name that we're going to, to look at here. Um, we're going to turn around and there's a, another a block. Sarah's going to point out to me so I remember where he is. Uh, yep, yeah, okay, got him yeah, up there. So he is E.W. Corrie. He's got 17th BAT, 17th Battalion AIF. Australian Imperial Forces, Singleton, New South Wales, and he was Lance Sergeant Ernest Waltz- Walter Corrie of the 17th Battalion, and he was from Scotts Flat in Singleton, New South Wales, uh, wounded uh, at Poisier, a gunshot wound to the face. Um, and again wounded on the 9th of the 10th, seventeen, at Passchendaele. He's on the Broodsin Ridge during the Battle of Passchendaele, or, uh, the Broodsin Ridge, and he was wounded uh, with a uh, shot in the arm, um, but he was killed on his way to the dressing station, aged 22, so killed by a shell and he never made it to the dressing station. He sadly is missing, and he's commemorated on the, the Menin Gate at, at Ypres, so he's, uh, he's on this memorial. We're now leaving the gates, um, and um, oh yeah, Sarah's just pointing out one more thing. Uh, just as literally as we're leaving, W Police Perth, uh, he's uh, got his name almost on one of the last blocks in the uh, in the site as we as we head out of it. So, we're walking back to that gateway, Sarah's going to close the gate, and what we're we actually going to come to now, and so. I have to say, it's not to everybody's uh, taste, but it's part of the story here. And this is the story of the people that hid and worked here. And we've got some mannequins, and those mannequins depict... Uh, we're going to walk through uh, an area where the mannequins are. And those mannequins depict the, the various trades of the people that uh, lived and worked uh, in these caverns in, in, times, of, in times of war. Um, what we're also going to come to, then, is the, a brand-new visitor centre now i have to say the Visitor center is sad in many ways it's because it wasn't completed until the the february of 2020 and it was just getting geared up for all the uh, the clients to come and of course then we we hit the pandemic so in fact very few if any people have been to see the visitors center yet and it's uh, it's well worth looking at it's uh, very interesting um it's uh, it's filled with information about the men who wrote the names the ones that, the chaps that we've just been talking about um, it tells you a little bit about the life behind the lines. and It also gives you an indication that this is not the only site where people scratch their names into the, into the walls. There are other sites, but this is perhaps the most famous and certainly the, the most accessible. The others, uh, other sites where we know that they graffitied the walls or scratched their names into the walls, we can uh, no longer no longer get to. So we're almost at the end here, so I'm just going to do a big thank you to, to Sarah, who's standing beside me here, the, the, our Australian guide, who helped us find our way around the site. Um, also to the, uh, the Cité Souterrand de for permission to film at a time when it's very difficult to get anywhere because of uh, this terrible uh, COVID. And then what we also need to uh, remember uh, and, and thank is uh, Gilles Prillot. I'm almost certainly seeing his second name not quite right for all his work that he did, uh, the research that he did on the Australian soldiers, which has an interesting story because he didn't come here initially to do that. He was researching the 30-year war. And as he was researching the 30-year war as an archaeologist, he, he kept glancing up and seeing all these names of the Australian soldiers. And he went off on a completely different tangent and started uh, doing the research uh, the, of these, uh, these Australians, which had really been forgotten. They'd been forgotten about uh, the, their names were here. I mean, everybody walks past them, but nobody had really bothered to research them. So fantastic uh, re- re- research he's done. And it's ongoing. We're still doing research, or he's still doing research. Um, and in fact, Sarah and I have helped in the past We've. Uh, Pointed him in the right direction a few times, and hopefully, what we're hoping that uh, will happen in the future is that some of the British soldiers on here, much more difficult to research, will be commemorated uh, as w- as well more so than than they are. Hence, that's why it's been a bit of an Australian uh, leading to this uh, uh, to this walk on the ground. So, thank you very much for listening. I hope you'll uh, join uh, me again on the next time that we uh, we actually get on the ground out and about.
0: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.